I want to talk tonight about the Great Commission versus social justice. And I put the word verse in there, um, not because I'm creating a false dichotomy, but I put the word verses in there because um, these two things are intention. It's been understood by Christians throughout church history that there is an inherent pull inside of the church as it relates to the Great Commission versus social justice. The concept of social justice is a relatively new word, and I'll talk more about that tonight. But nevertheless, I'm sure you have sympathy going all the way back to the book of Acts with this idea that the church is here, we have Christian transformed ethics, we're living our life in a different way in the world, and there is a desire to make people's lives better because of that. And that desire is often in tension with the clarity of the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching really the nations to obey all that Christ has commanded us. As we go into the world, what we find is a world that is wrecked by sin. We find cultures that are wrecked by sin. We find every culture is in the grip of sin, and every culture sins differently, has different systemic sins in it. Nevertheless, as the gospel goes forth in the world, it encounters thorns. It encounters fences. It encounters cultures that cling to their own false gods, their own false idols, and their own love of sin. And behind the cultural complexities is just the basic fact of physical poverty. I mean, one of the most obvious effects of sin in the world is the existence of physical poverty. Human suffering created by poverty is real, it's ubiquitous, it's heart-wrenching, there's so many contributing factors to, to human poverty and suffering. There's corruption in government. It's probably the most common in the world, followed by droughts and bodily injury, negligence. And in our culture, sinful laziness is perhaps more common. But when you go around the world, when you leave the confines of the Protestant work ethic, you quickly find out that the main driving factor of physical poverty is not lack of good, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work ethic but a culture that is in disrepair. And because of that, the faces of the poor are diverse. You can have in your mind the images of the refugees from war-torn nations, the suffering orphan in suburban cities. Some people are born into poverty through no fault of their own, with no hope of escape. And others, especially those in more developed nations, have made foolish choices that have catapulted their lives out of control and out of the reach of compassion, really. In the background of all that, you have Matthew 26, verse 11, where Jesus declares, the poor you will have with you always. What a fascinating verse to think about. When Jesus declares that, is, I mean, is it prophetic? Is he saying, just no matter what you do, come to grips with the facts, you will always have the poor with you? Is he merely quoting Leviticus, which the verses in Leviticus as well? In Leviticus, it's an introduction to the, some laws for dealing with the poor, that you, you know, you're not going to glean the corners of your, your field and so that the, the widows and the orphans will always have something to eat because they will always be there. Is he giving a subtle rebuke to kind of optimistic post-millennialism that if the church were just to finally take the Great Commission seriously, we could finally end poverty once and for all? To which Jesus says, hey, good luck with that, but remember, the poor you will have with you always. Ultimately, while human suffering is profound, 
It is the result of the fact that sin reigns through our world. Many Christians, I think, fail to get their mind around that. So I want to talk about some biblical principles for understanding this tension tonight. But I want to begin, so that we are keeping these in tension, I do want to begin tonight by reminding you that God does care for the poor. God cares for the poor because the Israelites were in poverty when they were in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. And God came down. He condescended to them through uh, Moses and through the angels and the trumpets. He came down with his law and he rescued his people. But it's not just merely confined to Israel. You see this throughout the scripture. Remember Zacchaeus. When he repented, he gave half of his money to the poor. And Luke describes that just as almost axiomatic, that the fact that this wealthy guy got saved, how do you know the wealthy guy really got saved? Well, he gave money to the poor. In fact, Jesus often used giving to the poor as a basic standard of righteousness. In Luke 6, he specifically blessed the poor. In one sermon, he told people to, quote, give to the one who begs from you. If you have two tunics, you're to share with the one who has none. And I know there's all kinds of moral implications to that, but at the very least, it's got to mean that the baseline there. Jesus, for example, told his followers not to worry about what they were going to wear because God would provide for them. And then he told them to sell all their possessions and give them to the poor so they may gain money bags that do not grow old. When you give a banquet, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, go and compel the poor to come in, the needy and the blind. When Paul was ordained to the Christian ministry, he was given one task, remember the poor. And Paul says, great, that's the very thing that I was eager to do. And to fulfill that command, by the way, Paul took collections in all the Gentile churches to meet the needs of the poor in the Jerusalem church. One of the criteria for being an elder. It's translated in 1 Timothy 3, Timothy 3, hospitable. But what that word means in the Greek mind, it means obviously opening your house to strangers, having people in your house. But specifically how you see it in 1 Timothy 3 and Hebrews 13 is this idea that Christians, especially missionaries that are on their way through, receive a sacrificial attitude when they are in your home. We've talked about this on Sunday mornings in James. James forget, forbids neglecting the poor. To say nothing about his illustration about telling a poor person, a poor believer who's in dire need to go away and good luck, be warm and well fed. So I feel like there are some generations of church history where that sermon right there that I just said, those verses would be confrontational. And perhaps to some of you they are. But Tonight, I think, I want to spend more time on the other end of the pendulum, a different kind of air when it comes to social justice, which is to respond to the existence of poverty and social injustice as if it were the church's mission to combat it. So I'm granting that there are social inequalities in the world, that there is social injustice in the world. We'll talk about how we define social justice later. But for the start, let me just say I'm granting for the sake of the discussion tonight, and because it's also true, (laughs) that there is such a thing as injustice in society, in the world, in our society. There are unjust and unequitable things in our culture and in our society. That's true. The air that I want to take issue with is for Christians to believe that it is the church's job to combat that injustice. Let me give you an example. Uh, Biola's alumni magazine, I don't know the title of it, but it recently had this cover story. uh, And the, the cover across the front of the magazine was, Is the Mission of Christianity Evolving? 
I had, I had Hillsong objections to the word evolving in there. <laughs> is the mission of Christianity evolving? Okay, get rid of the word evolving and just, is the mission of Christianity changing? Is it progressing? Is it morphing? Is it growing? And the story became one about social justice, about uh, ministering to the poor and trying to eradicate poverty. And there's a prevalent trend in many social justice circles that sees the mission of the church as the transformation of the culture. And this is why I really do think that so many of today's social justice warriors are yesterday's fundamentalists, just in skinny jeans. (laughs) What I mean by that is if you go back 20 or 30 years, it was the fundamentalists that despite their isolation from the culture, had as their goal the transformation of the culture. And it was not a winnable scenario, was it? I mean, how do you transform the culture when you are, have intentionally built yourself apart from it? And I think there were great strengths to some of the fundamentalist movement, a focus on holiness, for example, a focus on personal conversion and, and changed lives. I think you saw a lot of this in the Pentecostal movement as well. I think that was probably the strength of the Pentecostal and the holiness movement in the mid-1900s. But they had as their goal the transformation of society. And this morphed over time to using political means. This is where the whole religious right movement came from, to kind of transform society through political means. That would, you know, if the church would just get together, finally the Christians would realize that they are the majority of our culture and vote, we could change things. Well, that has kind of given way today to this social justice movement, I think. I mean, I think they're, the, so, today's social justice warrior is the rightful inheritor of that, that mantle because they bring with them the attitude that if only Christians would finally take their calling seriously, they could transform society according to our political vision of it. Now, it used to be that that was reserved for those who purveyed a, what was called the social gospel. I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase. The social gospel, uh, you know, something that morphed out of kind of liberation theology in some senses, but it was the idea that the gospel had as its main calling the transformation of society, the transformation of cultures. I mean, that was the goal. In the social gospel world, this wasn't veiled. It was the goal. And that was almost uniformly rejected not just in white evangelical churches, but also in in more conservative black churches. They also rejected the the thrust of the social gospel movement. Although I'm sure some of it resonated more with them than in the evangelical world. There was by and large, those who believed in inerrancy and the importance of personal conversion distanced themselves from the social gospel movement. In fact, some church historians say this is the most significant split in the black church in the last hundred years was over this issue whether or not the church should have as its goal cultural and social transformation. But now, evangelicals having split from the social gospel 50, 60 years ago, now find themselves flirting with it again, (laughs) just wanting to take it out on a date or two. 50 years ago, the social gospel didn't fit in in the evangelical church. I heard one author compare it to an elephant on a subway, easy to spot and comically out of place. (laughs) But now it seems that the elephant is trying hard to blend in. He's got an iPad and a tie and everything. (laughs) In the social justice movement, it ends up treating poverty as something that can be defeated, eliminated, or even mitigated through the church's resources. And the social justice movement views evangelism partially as converting people to Christ and partially as implementing social justice. 
And there's an obvious danger to this. The most, there's lots of dangers, but the obvious one I want to talk about tonight is that if you adopt that mindset, if your mindset becomes that the church's job is to transform the culture, I want you to see by the end of tonight how quickly evangelism gets eclipsed. The uniqueness of the gospel gets diluted and it gets replaced with a cultural etiquette or a cultural approach. And beyond that, there's the stubborn facts that if the church were to commit itself to transforming society and eradicating poverty and getting rid of social inequalities, the church is committing itself to an unwinnable war. There is no exit strategy to that war. There is no victory possible in that war. If your victory, if your defining victory is your mission as eliminating inequalities in society or eliminating injustice in society, then you will fail. Because as Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. It's not just that you'll fail, it's that so many churches begin to dump resources into those endeavors through the neglect of biblical and I think an effective approach to mercy ministry. And so that's why I think this is an important thing to talk about. Let me start with some definitions. First, I want to give you a definition of what social justice is. And before I do that, let me tell you that the phrase social justice is really hard to define. And it's hard to define in one sense, but not in another. It's not hard to define in the fact that there's lots of definitions out there of it. If you Google what is social justice, you will find many definitions and many of them overlap and they're similar. But it is hard to find because in the evangelical world, in our church world, those that talk most about social justice are those that want to stay far away from defining it. Because the moment it gets defined, you kind of lose your biblical framework very quickly. And so the phrase social justice is kept ambiguous in in most writings, most books and blog posts and kind of evangelical sermons and speeches on this, the phrase social justice is intentionally left undefined. For some people, it means reducing your carbon footprint. For others, an end to sex trafficking and human slavery. For some, it's all about statistics of of economic inequality and incarceration rates by, by race. Some people would see the existence of a plastic water bottle up here as a form of social injustice. I think many people mean by it something that's politically correct today, embraced by the culture today, and is an obvious good. But once it starts to get defined more particular, the support for it starts to erode. And so there's basically two ways to define social justice. Either, this first way, is results-oriented, focusing on social goods as commonly understood. This is probably the most common way in books and in theological works on social justice and from the social justice movement. This is the main definition you'll encounter. Many authors point out that this concept has its roots from William Goodwin, 1793. He wrote his book on this, where he said that every individual, you're going to see the seeds of communism and socialism in here, and where every individual has a right to share equitably in the wealth of society. That was William Goodwin's argument, 1793. This is the, think of 1793, you've got the empires collapsing, you've got uh, the, the tea plantations falling apart, you've got slavery growing in the south, and taking foothold there, you've got, you know, on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution, so there's a lot going on in the, the world at this time. And so the argument that he was making is that every individual has a right to share equitably in society's wealth. That's his argument. He was, of course, a utilitarian philosopher, And his writing is what went on to basically define what utilitarianism is, which is basically what's good for the most amount of people is morally good. And he had no problem defining good as 
equal to wealth. <laughs> you know, what's good for people is more money. The more wealth that society has, and there's a lot of overlap with capitalism here. He have no, would have no problem saying the wealthier society is, the better for that society, as long as everybody has justice would be everybody having equal access to that wealth. Well, this term gets picked up in Catholicism, and Catholic philosophers write about this first century, and it eventually worms its way into the Catholic catechism, where it remains to this very day. And the Catholic catechism, I should have put this quote on the board, but let me just read it to you. It defines social justice as, quote, when it, society ensures social justice when it provides the conditions that allow associations or individuals to obtain what is their due according to their nature and their vocation. Social justice is linked to the common good and the exercise of authority. Let me translate that definition into more Americanized English here, that social justice or a socially just society is one where everybody has access to the wealth, and this phrase, according to their due or to their nature, is the wiggle room for capitalism to fit in there. It's linked to the common good and the exercise of authority. So in other words, in the Catholic Catechism, social justice is people in society all having the same access to wealth, although some people might have more ability to, to get it than others. But notice that under this view, results are what matters. Who ends up with what? Norman Geisler, I think, unfortunately, takes on some of this in his book on loving your neighbor. He writes, quote, the economic disparity among mankind is the main type of social injustice. So Geisler writes that an economic disparity is an example of social injustice. With this view, Thomas Sowell points out that charity ceases. If you have this mindset about social justice, he says the, the biggest tragedy in this is that charity stops being something you give out of liberty and becomes a form of justice, which is not charity. That when you give somebody money to make it an equal playing field, you're no longer acting in a charitable fashion. You're just doing what's just. And I think he has a good point there. The social justice in our culture today, though, goes beyond wealth. It embraces the current concept of political right and wrong, and then it takes justice to be defined as the elimination of wrongs. I think most in the church in the last year, I think the stat that most people, most preachers I've heard preaching this have fixated on is uh, the disparity of incarceration rates, the disparity of literacy rates in our culture based upon race. When literacy, when African Americans and whites have different literacy, have different uh, life expectancy, have different incarceration rates, have different median incomes, etc., that becomes the main example of social injustice. And those, those things are all true. I'm not disputing the existence of those disparities, but that becomes the identifier of what's, what social injustice is. And I can believe that, and I can even remember, I'm even granting that that injustice exists and that it does have its roots in injustice. I have no problem saying that. But if you define social justice this way, it ends up roping the church into the changing of that, the transformation of that. I think that suffers from a serious lack of wisdom because what one generation or culture sees as a social injustice issue is not reciprocated. There are countless examples in main writings in the last 50 years of people who've advocated social justice of things they put forward, not fringe ideas, but the main authors in favor of social justice over the last 50 years have put forward many ideas, many examples of the way church can enact justice that now we look back on and see that they did way more harm than good. Things like wealth distribution, church giving money to all the homeless in the park, 
If you were to give a $20 bill to every homeless guy in the park, that would not help the homeless guy or the park, generally speaking. And Grudem has a very helpful catalog on this in his book, The Poverty of Nations, which is, I, I think it's a very good book. It's got, there's some things in there that I would uh, object to or disagree with, but I think it's a very helpful book for understanding this principle. The things that one generation thinks would be advanced social justice often get undone in the next generation because you realize how, how foolish they were. And when the church adopts this, that puts the church on the front end of driving foolishness. Examples that Grudem gives, uh, the idea of, of mosquito nets or uh, of giving um, go- direct government grants, of sending clothes. And Grudem has a long section in his book about how uh, the way the church distributed clothes through much of Africa for 20, 30 years really stifled the economies in those places for so long. Even the, uh, the coffee was the main rage for a while. Remember the, uh, you know, buy the right kind of coffee from the right kind of farmers? And now the economists have tracked the impact on that in the societies. You see how the, it, it's not helping. In fact, you make, many economists argue it's actually hurting and driving more of a social inequality there. And that should be expected because once you leave the bounds of Scripture, there's no clear and objective description about what is good or best for people or what justice even is. I think most evangelicals understand that point, and so they stay away from this definition. But I, before I go to the next slide, I want you to understand that this is the definition that most social justice advocates use. That you see the, the evidence of, of social injustice based on unequal outcomes, on unequal wealth, or statistics. So many evangelicals that go down this road adopt a different definition. And they say that social justice is process-oriented, focused on fair, legal social structures. So what Kevin DeYoung does in his book, What is the Mission of the Church, which is an exceptional book. If you wanted to read one book on this topic, that's what I would recommend to you. This is the book I wanted to write. I wrote my, my thesis, my THM thesis in seminary on this issue, and I was going to turn it into a book. And then Kevin DeYoung books came, came out, and I gave up. <laughs> It's an exceptional book. What is the mission of the church? Kevin DeYoung. But he takes this definition for social justice. If you want to define social justice in a way that Christians can get on board with it, this is your definition. It's process-oriented. This is the kind of of social justice you see described in the Old Testament. It's not outcome-oriented, but it's process-oriented. In other words, it's saying that people from, from all races, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds should have the same access to uh, the legal system, should have the same protections from the law. That's what's meant by this idea. So it's not about outcome, it's about process. Kevin DeYoung writes, quote, social justice should not be about an achieved result, but about equal treatment and process. This view focuses, again, not on the results of society, but by the process by which those results are achieved. If you believe in this definition of social justice, you would be opposed to favoritism. You'd be opposed to slavery. You'd be opposed to judges turning the other way or to a a culture that propagates wealth in the hands of a few just by entitlement or law enforcement turning a blind eye when crimes are committed by the powerful against the weak is the most obvious global example. Two standards in the law, one for the powerful and one for the least. That's unjust and the Bible calls that unjust. The Bible condemns it. And this is what Christians are called to speak out against things that are not objectively right, things that are not in line with God's law. We call sin, sin. We tell Herod it's not right to sleep with whoever you want to. 
You tell Americans it's not right, it's not lawful, it's not biblical for you to own slaves. It's not biblical for you to make laws that enshrine segregation. Those are sinful laws. They are not compatible with a biblical world view, and they have a devastating effect on society, as our culture attests to generations later. And they are unjust laws. They're objectively unjust because they go against God's clear standard as revealed in Scripture. So you're not after the abstract outcome-oriented approach. You're at the process level. You're saying the laws that are set up that segregate people and separate people and give justice to some and injustice to others are inherently unbiblical and unjust. These are certain things that Christians understand that non-Christians struggle with. You think of laws against abortion or that allow abortion would be such a clear example of this. It's not very often you get a thoughtful person on the the pro-choice side that asks, why is it that Christians care so much about this issue? Like, what is it? Is it the politics of the thing? And, And I don't think that that's true. I mean, I've met many Christians that have shrugged their shoulders and say, I wish both parties would be pro-life so I'd have some choices around here. I don't think it's the politics of the thing. It's that Christians understand that justice is speaking up for the weak and those that cannot defend themselves. The lack of protection for the unborn was one example. The care for orphans that has been uh, an education which has been put forward by churches around the world for centuries. The abuse of power in many countries where it's often the church that speaks out most clearly about that. The major sins that are tolerated in the world and the world acts like they're no big deal and it falls to Christians to expose them and confront them. That would be a good example of social justice. All the while remembering that the sins are institutional. They're enshrined by the culture in laws often. Apathy, treated with apathy. And are not the results of differing abilities and circumstances. You know, it's not an example that people often use is, you know, your 40 sprint time. How fast it is that you can run a 40. Many of you could beat me in a 40-yard sprint. That's not an example of social injustice. (laughs) It's just that some of you are faster. Unless there was a law that said people from New Mexico can't train for running. They can't eat the right food. They're not allowed to buy certain shoes. When they run on a track, they have to run one-legged on a track. Now you're in the process world. That would be an example of a social justice issue as it relates to sprinting. And I think we can understand that, and that's why I use that example of sprinting, because we can get our minds around that very easily. When you apply that to our culture, that's where you see social injustice. Kevin DeYoung again writes, quote, justice is a biblical category, is not synonymous with anything and everything we feel would be good for the world. It is not synonymous with eliminating the results of differing abilities and circumstances, but it does speak to the process of legality as it is enshrined and codified in the culture. That's social justice. So if you go with the first definition, I think you're going to leave the Bible behind very quickly and be off in Never Never Land. If you go with the second definition, I think you have the Bible backing you and the Bible in your corner, and it gives you more power and authority to confront the sins of the world. Let me define the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission is, this one's much easier to define, the command of the Lord to evangelize, baptize, and disciple the unreached. Basically, it comes down to one thing, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's all about proclamation. 
With no proclamation, there can be no true evangelism. I noticed even this morning in Pastor Tom's sermon, Acts 5 ends with, uh, they, went, they went back, you know, they were freed from jail and they went back and they were teaching and evangelizing in the Greek, didasko and uh, Yungalitso. And that's the idea, didasko is they're teaching, I think what I'm getting from this is that they're teaching Christians and they're evangelizing, proclaiming the gospel to the unsaved. That becomes the great commission right there. Both of them in that one verse at the end of Acts 5. You understand this in the Bible? How can people believe in him whom they've not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words about Christ, Romans 10, 14, and 17. And that could be translated, so faith comes from hearing and hearing a speech about Christ. That's what evangelism is. So the Great Commission is a call to reach our communities for Christ. And it starts at the most local level and then it goes beyond that. You start with those around you and then you know your neighbors and your coworkers and you go to their neighbors and their coworkers and then to other countries all the way to Chad. That's the idea of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is about people, not about programs. A church fulfills the Great Commission when they are reaching people, not based upon the kind of programs they have. Now, this is going to be a point I'm filing away for later, but I want to just pull the car over briefly and talk about that right here. If I were to ask you, how are you involved in the Great Commission? I hope you would not say, well, I go to a church that has some really cool evangelism people. Like we prayed for somebody going to Chad the other day. How neat is that? We've got a group that goes to George Mason and evangelizes every week. I mean, that's so neat. I love going to a church where people go to George Mason every week and evangelize. Or some people go to the mosque and evangelize outside of the mosque. I mean, I, that's, that's my church. Okay, great. That's all true. But that's not how you're involved. How are you involved in the Great Commission? Because it's about what you're doing to reach people, not about what programs you're at a church and the church has them. And you can see where this is going as it relates to social justice, of course, I think. Evangelism is about real people with real problems and real sin and offers individuals escape from the wrath to come. And it does so that it engages a sinner at a personal level. Now, the Great Commission will help society. It'll open society's eyes to cultural sins as more Christians, as more people come to faith in theory, more people will speak out against the institutional sins, and over time, society changes. That happens. I have the book of Philemon on my side. When you think about Philemon, Paul does not tell Philemon, free all of your slaves. Paul tells Philemon, free one slave, Onesimus, and he, in so doing, he plants the seed that is going to turn the Roman Empire upside down. 350 words in the book of Philemon. One of the shortest books in the New Testament, and yet it has one of the most profound impacts in the New Testament, historically speaking. Turn the world upside down. That's what happens when you preach the gospel. It goes into people's hearts, and it changes them. That's what should happen. I know through history, that has not always been the case. Through history, sometimes you know, what should happen is the gospel goes to slave owners, and they, they get converted, and they release their slaves. That's what should happen. But often what happens is they inherit Christianity and use it to, you know, to solidify their standing in the culture. But the way it's designed by God is that it should transform society. So at this point, I want to point out that the title assumes a dichotomy. And you might think that's a false dichotomy. Can't I do both? Can't I take stands on social justice and evangelize? And you can try, but I want to submit to you the history of the human race. <laughs> you see this through the Bible and through church history that when people become focused on social justice issues, it undercuts 
evangelism and their social justice focus is not ultimately successful. You see this in Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, there's a divide among the, the widows, and it's a racial divide. It's between the Jews and the Hellenists, the Greek widows and the Jewish widows in the church. They're not uh, having their, their food distributed equitably, and there's disruption in the church. And think about how the elders respond to that. And this is just a powerful verse to think about because, I mean, believe me, if something at a fraction of that level were to happen at Emmanuel, if we were to hear that there was a racial divide in the basketball game in the gym, I'm telling you, elders would go to DEFCON 5 or 1, which is the bad one? 1. <laughs> it would be code red. <laughs> It'd be all hands on deck. People would be losing their minds. But think about what happens in Acts 6 when they realize that was happening with the widows there. The elders say, hey, deacons, you take care of this because we need to stay focused on prayer and the study of God's word. A very convicting passage, to me anyway. And you see how this goes through church history. John Calvin in Geneva made almsgiving to the poor a mandatory part of church membership. You wanted to be a member of Calvin's church in Geneva, you had to sign a commitment that you would be giving a portion of your income to the poor. And there was, again, a massive immigrant population in Geneva, the people who were fleeing the religious persecution in, in England and in France had come to Geneva. It was uh, over half of Geneva, at least, was refugees. And so that's why Calvin had that. But after Calvin's ministry, Beza and others realized that that is not an effective approach to transforming your culture. You can't mandate church membership. People give money to the poor. John Wesley was the first one who wrote a counter-argument to, to Calvin 150 years later. This is described in Manfred Marco, who wrote the, probably the main book on this, uh, um, about the uh, compassion of John Wesley. He writes this, quote, does the church have an obligation to social justice as an end or to evangelism as an end? Inside of that, does God give the church the possibility of transforming the world's social orders as an objective they should pursue? John Calvin said, yes, the church can transform culture and God did tell the church, you better make sure the people are giving their money to the poor or they cannot be part of the church. That was Calvin's attitude. It did not work and it took Wesley 150, 175 years later to come along and write a rebuttal to that, why that is not fitting for the church to have. Wesley broke from Calvin's tradition. He pushed the idea that the church's job in transforming the in society was to be a gospel witness and then let the saved people be involved with the transformation of society instead of it being the church leading the charge. It was to be the Christians instead of the church. That's how Wesley wrote and argued. And Wesley's writing, you may not have be familiar with it, but believe me, it's what still carries the day in most of the evangelical world. We, most of us understand that. But then the United States and slavery came about. There were many Christians who were influenced by John Wesley who understood it was their duty to oppose slavery. And interestingly enough, they got that conviction because of evangelism. They wanted to evangelize slaves. They had the book of Philemon approach. Slaves get converted to Christ. Shouldn't that rescue Southern culture? And of course, we know that that ultimately didn't work. Ultimately, many, in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, slave owners resisted having their slaves evangelized because that often brought with it literacy and, of course, would then be either freedom or rebellion. 
And this is all over. In the southern world, the Presbyterians got their start of this. The, the Southern Baptists versus the Northern Baptists came out of this issue. And the Southern Baptist issue was should slave, can slave owners serve as missionaries? That was the thing that provoked the southern, start of the Southern Baptist Conference. And Christians, for the most part, spoke out against slavery. After slavery became segregation. And so this question, is it the church's job to oppose segregation? And understand that much of our confusion about that comes from our country's own convoluted racial history and a church that is actively wheeling away from John Wesley's writings about this and towards a full-scale, global-warming-fighting, wealth-redistributing approach to justice, which makes us a hard question. Now you're stuck with many evangelicals who say any example of injustice should be opposed by the church. We've gone from the sliding scale of opposing slavery all the way to oppose global warming with the same force that you oppose slavery. It's a gospel issue. Scott McKnight, church historian, calls this shift, quote, the biggest shift in evangelicalism in the last century. Rick Warren even wrote a book on this, and he called it a second reformation, saying the reformation that's hitting the church now is not about creeds, it's about deeds. It's about, you know, taking, eradicating poverty, eradicating malaria, ending global warming. And that's the new reformation hitting the church. I think that reformation would undercut the Great Commission. And so let me give you some reasons why. Here's some principles to help you think through this. Foundational principles as you try to assimilate all this in your mind. First, understand there's an Old Testament versus New Testament dichotomy here. I wish more people would write about this or think about this or talk about this when they're talking about these issues. In the Old Testament, Israel was not supposed to go in the world evangelizing. They were supposed to transform their their culture right there. Described in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Stay here and fix your country. <laughs> and of course the Israelites, some of them did a good job staying until God kicked them out. But for the most part, they did a bad job transforming. <laughs> There's no missions in the Old Testament. Jonah notwithstanding. In the New Testament, you have everything turned on its head. In the New Testament, the church goes into the world. It's not making a base camp and transforming culture, it's going into the world. It's preaching the gospel in every culture. Now, there is an effect that as the church goes in the world, they're changing society wherever they are. As they love their neighbors, it has an effect on transformation. But that's never the goal in the New Testament. The New Testament is always gospel expansion. Second, there's a discontinuity in evangelism, but there is a continuity in most ethics. The concept of justice in the Old Testament remains the same in the New Testament. Most ethical commands in the New Testament are not new in the New Testament. They're drawn from the compassion of Christ, but rooted in the compassion of Yahweh. And the focus, though, remains on confronting sin for the purpose of gospel expansion. There's no New Testament commands. Listen. Hear me carefully in this because you'll think I'm wrong the first time you hear it. There's no New Testament commands about confronting society's sins or about eradicating physical poverty in the world. There's no New Testament commands about that. Never once does the New Testament tell the church to go and fight poverty or to go and fight homelessness or to go and care for the poor of the world. There's not a single example of that in the New Testament. 
even Tim Keller, who's probably the leading proponent of this idea the church should transform society. He's probably the leading one on that, on that path. Even he, in his book, uh, The Call of the Jericho Road, in that book, he grants that point. He says, if you're going to discard the Old Testament ethics towards Israel and say they don't apply to a church, the church, there's nothing left for you other than the parable of the Good Samaritan. So even Keller grants that. My, my point is that there's no New Testament commands for the church to confront the sins of the world to transform society. The focus in the New Testament is on the internal, Christians' relationships to each other, and external with evangelism. Internal with your money and your resources, external with evangelism. Again, the Acts 6 issue. It was not that there was disparity in the widows and how they were cared for in Jerusalem. It was that there was disparity in the church in Jerusalem. When Paul's collecting money for the poor, it's not for the poor of the world. It's for the poor in the church. That's a huge distinction. And finally, there's a personal corporate distinction. Not every command in the New Testament is fulfilled by the church. Not every command in the New Testament is fulfilled by individuals. There's a difference. Some commands in the New Testament are given to the church, and some commands are given to you. Pray without ceasing. That's given to you. (laughs) Appoint elders to guard watch over your souls. That's given to the church. You don't get to appoint your own own elders. There's no fantasy elder draft. (laughs) There's a distinction here. And you get that. I picked two obvious examples. The prayer without ceasing, given to people. Appoint from yourselves elders, or in Acts 6, deacons, given to the church. You don't fill it out on your own. Charles Ryrie writes this, for the most part, the method to use in effecting change in social structures is individual action rather than corporate action. Christians are called to love their neighbors, give money to the poor, and fight materialism in their lives. We're called to be evangelists in the world and to bring the gospel to those who have not heard it. At the same time, authenticate the message by our deeds. That's individual commands. So you have to ask, are the commands to fight poverty, change the culture, given to the church corporate or to the individual? And I say to the church, individual. I know there are other writers, famous Christians, Tim Keller, John Stott, Randy Neighbors, they all argue that it's corporate. But I don't, without going into the details of their arguments, I don't buy what they're selling. I think these commands in the New Testament, to the extent that they exist, are all given to individual believers. David Duran, who's president of Detroit Baptist Seminary, he has a book on missions, and he says the only external focus command given to the corporate church is church planning. That's it. I think he makes a persuasive case. You want to know a command given to the church that's looking external to the church? Church planning. Beyond that, everything external falls to individuals to do as they take the gospel into the world. Alexander Strouch, in his book on deacons, argues that Acts 6 makes this point, that the only thing that warranted the elders' attention was that it was within the church. Michael Horton writes a book on this as well. He goes back to the basic distinction between those inside the church and those outside, and he writes, quote, what the church does for the household of faith is different than what individual Christians do as neighbors in the world. And you have to, I mean, please understand this at least politically. Now, in our culture, things get so politicalized so quickly, you see the importance of getting this politically. When the church stands for a candidate or a political issue, that's always going to be problematic. It will always hurt the church's evangelism, Right? I mean, even now, you try to evangelize somebody, oh, I can't, I would never be a Christian because you guys are the ones who elected so-and-so. Fill in your own so-and-so there. (laughs) 
And you think, but the church doesn't vote. You know, I don't even think we have a polling place here. Do we have a polling place here? No, we don't have one here. <laughs> but you understand the danger when it becomes the church is doing those things, it ends up hindering their witness. Which leads to this final principle here, that there's a priority of proximity, is how I'm going to call it. I didn't make up that phrase, but I don't remember where I found it. <laughs> priority of proximity or mercy triage. Not all needs are equal. You understand this with love. You're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to love your neighbor. You're supposed to love your children. You're supposed to love your wife. But you don't love them all in the same way or in the same hierarchy. Ditto with needs. In the New Testament, the highest part of this hierarchy is the needs of your family. You have to meet their needs. If you don't take care of the needs of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Second is the needs of those of what David Wells calls the insiders, the needs of those in your church. You care for the poor within your church. And third is the poor within other churches. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary on Acts writes, quote, while the goal of the early church was certainly to abolish poverty so that needy persons as a class of people were no longer among them, that goal was only within the church members, not outsiders. And that's where I get the phrase I say every communion Sunday when we take a benevolent offering. I always say it's our goal to make sure there is no poverty in the church. That is a mission given to the church, but it's in the church. You see this in the book of Acts. They sell all their money, and they, uh, Peter and John have all the money they could ever need, and five minutes later run into some beggars asking for money, and they say, we do not have silver and gold, and it was not that they forgot their wallet. <laughs> well, they have. They give them in the gospel, preaching the gospel to them. When they're converted now, they have access to the material wealth of the church. And finally, one more principle. There's a role of eschatology in all this. I don't know how well you can see that chart, but I'll walk you through it. The role of eschatology. I think those that have the social justice outlook that want the church to be involved in changing the culture have this idea that the church will make the world a better place. And that's something I disagree with. I think the New Testament teaches what is called premillennialism, the idea that the world is going to get worse until Jesus comes back. And you can call that ambivalence or eschatological apathy. I've heard some people call it that. But I don't think so. I think I'm optimistic the gospel is going to save people, but I'm pessimistic about the state of the world until Jesus returns. That's why I'm not looking for a politician to save our, our culture or our country. I have one Savior, and that's all I need. <laughs> Daryl Bach writes this, Professor Dallas, quote, confusion about the identity of the kingdom, its subjects, and its nature leads to confusion about the church's mission and its mandate as it pertains to social action. That's a very important line from Bach, so let me read it again. Confusion about the identity of the kingdom, its subjects, and its nature leads to confusion about the church's mission and mandate as it pertains to social action. And this is what he means. If you believe that the kingdom is now like Tim Keller and, and John Stott would teach, then you believe the church has to bring it about. Keller writes this, quote, to spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. It is also working for the healings of persons, families, relationships, and nations. It is doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. I mean, that sounds like, it sounds so nice, doesn't it? But it's just not true. To spread the kingdom of God is not doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice, and healing families and relationships. It is preaching the gospel. And as the gospel takes root, as citizens are added to the kingdom, then lives are changed. I have a lot of other quotes that I disagree with, but just know I have them. And 
I'm disagreeing with them in my heart <laughs> for the sake of time. So I give you a little chart here. I think this is a helpful way to think about social justice. For the person who believes the kingdom is now, like Keller or Stott, and they believe these commands are corporate, what you're going to end up with is a church that's devoted to full-fledged, church-led focus on social justice. If you believe the kingdom is now, but those commands are given to individuals, like Michael Horton or many Presbyterians would fall into this category, they would say individuals have a priority of social justice, but predominantly within the church. If you believe the kingdom is future, like premillennialists, and you see these commands given to the church body to bring about justice, but a future kingdom, then you'll have a both-and approach to church-led mercy ministry and evangelism that's blazing in Bach. Or I'm in this last square here. If you believe the kingdom is later and the commands to change the world are given to individuals as they scatter, you can have a church that focuses on teaching the gospel and leaves Christians to focus on living the gospel out. Ryrie would be an example of that. Ryrie writes this, quote, This is one of the tensions under which Christians live. They know that they cannot bring in peace, righteousness, or social justice, and yet they know that these will be accomplished only by Christ at his second coming. At the same time, they know equally well that they ought to pray for peace and practice righteousness. Realistic dispensational premillennialism acknowledges both. End quote. So how does this work out? I know that evangelicalism has its own share of blame in our country's racially scarred past and even in its present. I've been reading a lot of books on the start of evangelicalism and fundamentalism from the 1930s, really in the time between the wars. And it's just heartbreaking to see how many churches were in favor of laws banning interracial marriage. Churches were, I mean, churches seemed to be so late to cultural fads. The evolution fad had kind of already, you know, started to putter out in the scientific world and churches were jumping on it and saying God made the races differently. They shouldn't be allowed to marry. And and it became a political thing for them. Prohibition, interracial marriage and and it kind of enshrined in the culture that evangelical churches would be mostly white. And I think it's a tragedy. And I know the line, just preach the gospel and let God deal with the culture, has been used by people to tolerate ambivalence towards racism. And even Jim Crow's laws, where you had Christians that wouldn't speak out against Jim Crow's laws or wouldn't speak out against interracial marriage laws because, hey, all I do is preach the gospel. <laughs> it's not my job to fix the culture. So I know that there's a danger in that. At the same time, I still think that this is the right balance to say that it is not the church's job to change the culture. I still think it's the right balance, despite the fact that that phrase has been misused. And what makes it balance is when you can say it, it's not the church's job to change the culture, but you finish it off by saying, it is my job to stand up for righteousness and to confront sin. There's very practical applications to this. This is why at Emmanuel, we don't ask you to vote in certain ways. We don't ask you to write your congressman. We might ask you to write the city council person for the zoning on their lot over there, but that's a future time. (laughs) But I hope I could never be accused of being silent about sins like abortion or sexual immorality or racism or materialism, sins that are in very real ways enshrined in our culture, accepted in our culture. I mean, some of those sins are just so embraced by our culture, and I hope that I could never be accused of being silent on those sins because I speak out against them, I say that they're sin, I identify them as sin. You could think this is lazy, but I believe this is the biblical balance is I don't have to provide solutions for them. I don't have to say we should restructure society this way or that way. But I preach the gospel, and I hope you do too, and I hope it changes your own life, and I hope you share the gospel to others and it changes other people's lives. 
I don't want people in this church to be comfortable inside of those sins. I don't want those sins to be tolerated in the church. At the same time, I don't want you to think it's your job to make sure those sins are not tolerated in the world. Does that make sense? Sins of, to give you the list again that I just jotted down, sexual immorality, abortion, racism, materialism, those are sins I think that are just imbibed in our culture. Those sins should not have a home in our church. They shouldn't be comfortable here. At the same, and you should oppose them when you see them and speak out against them. At the same time, it's not our job to drive them out of our culture. I think this corporate individual distinction is important. I want IBC to raise up the William Wilberforces and the Rosa Parks of our generation. And I want the pastors here to be the, the John Newtons or the Greats of this generation to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that should be your job. As you scatter into the world, you should oppose sin, you should oppose unrighteousness as it really exists, not in its perceived form, not in its outcome-based form, but in its process form. You should oppose it, you should confront it, and you should work to change the world, knowing that the main way you change the world is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to make mature followers of you. Give us the courage to stand for righteousness, the wisdom and know how to navigate these gray areas. Give us the boldness to speak against sin with a clarity and a power and persuasion. But give us the conviction that it's our job to reach the world for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would use us this week to do just that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.